0: Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. I am so stoked for today's episode of the Water Women Podcast. We're going to dive in with one of my new friends, Valeska, and talk to her all about her master's project and what she's doing And basically learn all about fish and fish ears and otoliths and what's going on in these fishes' lives because what she does is so cool and so in-depth. So if you get lost for a minute, don't worry, me too, but she will bring it back around and she does a fantastic job of explaining everything in this episode. And I'm so excited for you guys to learn all about it like I did. I would love for you to start out by introducing yourself and telling us what pronouns you use
1: yeah uh hi everyone my name is Valeska super excited to be here um I use she her pronouns um and yeah I'm excited for
0: uh, our chat today me too now Valeska is one of my newer friends I actually met her like just a couple months ago when I was over in Newfoundland visiting my friend Caitlin and we became pretty fast friends I think it's a safe word yeah. we clicked pretty easily and I was super excited to meet her and learn about her research and knew almost immediately I wanted to have her on the podcast to talk about it. So I'm super excited. Great. <laughs> so do you want to tell us a little bit about like who you are and what you do and why you're yeah, a model? Yeah, sure.
1: Yeah. Um, so I'm basically doing my master's. Uh, I, I've started it since September t- 2019. Um, and it's been quite the journey. Obviously, COVID has changed some plans. Uh, but my master's uh, general purpose is uh, using this new biogeological method to determine physiological costs of wild individuals in their direct natural habitat. Um, so it's pretty exciting stuff. Uh, kind of linking physiology to the environment. Um, In the past, when researchers examine energy expenditure or metabolic rate, it's usually done on constrained animals in the lab. And the way these animals act to external cues, such as increase in temperature, can depend a lot on the stresses they have in this controlled environment, right? So this is not really the best environment in which to examine organisms and predict responses to change in the actual ocean We're experiencing a lot of change right now, right, with climate change, fluctuations in temperature, pH, extinction of top predators, and redistribution of predator-prey interactions. So it's getting more and more important to measure an individual's physiological reaction, um, the changes in the allocation of energy expenditure, and any direct costs to the individual's survival, really, um, because that is the only way we can make informed and sustainable fisheries catch projections and conservation predictions. Um, so my research uh, kind of uses a new method um, uh, and and uses that to, uh, to look at animals directly in their environment. So how can we measure fish and their natural habitat without disturbing them, right, or removing them from their environment? Well... As I said, uh, I'm using this cool new method uh, that was solidified and calibrated for uh, a few different fish species at the end of 2019 that looks at the earstone of fish. Uh, So the earstone of fish is called an otolith. Um, It's this tiny, tiny um, like disc in uh, the ear of a fish and you kind of have to dissect them and kind of go looking for them. Um, but the earstone of the fish kind of is this really cool record um, of interactions that the fish has with its environment. So it's kind of like a a tree trunk. So every year there's this layer of um, carbonate that's added to it, and you can look inside that layer um, for clues on water temperature, um, on what the fish is eating. Um, and this little record, it doesn't change over time. So um, if you collect a fish at the end of its lifetime and you go back in this record, you can actually see um, kind of what the fish was experiencing um, at that specific age ring. Right. Um, so, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Um, and recently they went a step further with this um This structure, and they're now able to look at oxygen consumption. Um, So you go into the otolith, um, and you you look at the carbon signatures of it, the stable isotope signatures, and you can kind of, using different equations, you can um, figure out uh, the oxygen consumption of the fish, and oxygen consumption can be then calibrated to metabolic rate, right? So um, this oxygen consumption is the oxygen consumption that the fish was experiencing at that time in its natural environment and that gives us not just standard metabolic rate which is um, the energy expenditure for survival or just activity med- metabolism which is um, the energy expenditure for a specific um, specific activity like how you uh, use like swimming speeds and stuff like that in the lab, but it's it's full um, energy expenditure for what it was doing um, in the wild. So standard metabolic rate, specific dynamic action, which is um, the fish digesting and also uh, this activity. So it really gives us a full picture of how the um, fish is experiencing its environment, and that's important because. Um, it's important to look at trade-offs and costs that the fish is experiencing in its natural environment, especially with these anthropogenic and climate changes that we're experiencing, um, to kind of get an idea of um, how the fish is interacting with its environment, how it's um, surviving, and also uh, what we can do kind of to um, give that organism space um, to be able to go about its survival without stressing it out too much with fish proje- uh, fish catch projections and things like that.
0: Cool it's so cool how you can learn so much about this fish in its life just from like this little piece of its body just this tiny yeah. tiny little thing.
1: Yeah it's crazy and I, I work with um, very young fish uh, age zero and age one fish so these discs are super super small like like the tip of my finger small, right? So uh, when you're dissecting them, you have to be careful not to drop them because I've definitely (laughs) lost a few and they're very fragile too, right? So it definitely takes a few times with them uh, to get it right. But yeah, it's really cool. And um, well, I guess my specific project, like that's kind of the background of it, but my specific project is working with Atlantic Cod. So young Atlantic Cod, Um, in Newfoundland. So um, in Newfoundland, there's something interesting happening um, due to climate change. When you hear about climate change and water temperature, you hear that the oceans are warming everywhere, right? But um, in Newfoundland, actually, uh, the water temperature is getting colder in the spring, and that's because of the Labrador current um, coming from the north. So fish in the springtime, uh, when the first spawning cycle kind of comes through with Atlantic cod, the first few fish that are born, they experience much colder temperatures than the fish that are born later in the year. So, what's interesting with Atlantic cod is that um, they are born in different pulses. So, it kind of starts um, near like the mid spring. Um and they'll there'll be kind of a rollout of the first few baby cod coming out, and then a month later there will be another batch. Um, and these are called pulses. So pulse one would be the earlier one, and then we have like about five pulses usually. Oh, so cool. what yeah, so what I did um in the summer of 2019 is I caught a few different pulses. So I got pulse ones, ones and twos that I clumped together, and pulse three and fours that I clumped together. And um, the fun thing about those two is that they're born at different temperatures, right? And that's temperature is really important for uh, these vulnerable early life stages because it affects the way that um, these fish grow and um, growth is also really important for these early life stages because the faster you grow, um, the more strong you are, the better you can evade predators. Um, and kind of the more ready you are for all these stresses that come um, with the environment. So um, what I am looking at basically is uh, at the difference in field metabolic rate. So this metabolic rate, this holistic metabolic rate I mentioned earlier, um, and kind of see if there's um, differences within pulses. So in organisms that are experiencing the same temperature and probably the same growth rate, Um, And also between pulses, so kind of looking at how temperature has an impact on this metabolic crate, on its growth, Um, and then taking it one step further and looking at the overwintering survival. Um, So looking at these age ones before the winter and then kind of trying to predict um, which fish will survive. Is it the ones that are bigger by the end of winter? the fall so the earlier pulses that are exposed to colder temperatures or is it those later pulses that are born in warm temperatures but that do end up being smaller because they haven't been alive for as long right so yeah yeah yeah, I kind of had like two field seasons um one for the age zeros and then one this year to get those age ones to get the fish um that kind of survive the overwintering period um and yeah, I don't actually know if I'm gonna be using those age ones though because um, you know, COVID. Uh, yeah. a lot of my samples are actually still in the UK, uh, um, oh, okay. where I was when COVID hit. Um, so yeah, the whole project is kind of rerouting <laughs> at the moment, but um, it is what it is, you know. You have to I take it did as it not comes. Not wait
0: to hear that story because that when yeah. you were telling me about this, but just was like. Oh yeah, I had to leave all these things in uh, the UK. I was like, oh, um, awesome! Great, that's fantastic yeah. for your project. Really helps. It yeah,
1: out.
0: yeah. So basically, what happened is, um,
1: I so I'm I'm using this method, and this method was um, kind of uh, discovered, not discovered, but um, kind of rolled out because of these calibration studies that happened in 2019. Um, a cool paper by Chung et al. 2019 and run um, in the lab of Clive Truman. So um, my supervisor, Amanda Bates, she's uh, quite good friends with uh, Clive. And at the beginning of my master's, she's like, yeah, totally. You can totally go to the UK with all of your samples that you've collected in in 2019, these age zeros, and kind of go to the UK, use their lab at the National Oceanography Centre, Um, use all their equipment learn how to do it and come back with this knowledge and kind of implement it at our university here in Newfoundland so that was super exciting Uh, I actually got a travel fellowship to go on this trip so I had it fully funded had money (sighs) for like cool hotels and like going out to restaurants on my own, which was super cool. Um, and eating good food and chocolate and cheese, you know, like the European food. So good. But anyways, <laughs> I was supposed food to have there for. Really. Yeah, yeah, I was supposed to be there for uh, about a month working. And I had made all these other plans, like I was gonna make this big trip out of it. Um, but in the end, I was there for two weeks working, so I learned a lot, made a lot of really good friends, actually, um, some friends in the geology department who, you know, like, totally the British way of life, like, had the kettle on all day and just chatting, listening to music, like, putting my otoliths in their resin beds, um, kind of learning (laughs) the first few steps to, um, like, getting my otoliths ready for drilling, And then after these two weeks, I went on a trip uh, to Scotland, like a kind of a midway trip because my friend had um, some time off school and then I was going to come back for two more weeks, finish finish my stuff, go to Spain and meet my parents, go on a trip, go to the Netherlands, go to Prague and visit another friend. But obviously like halfway through of my time in Scotland not even halfway through of I had to go back and get my stuff and leave the UK kind of without knowing what was going to happen you know like I left and I was like oh yeah I'll for sure be able to you know come back this summer or even like this past Christmas latest Um, but obviously that did not end up happening so um, yeah I kind of left all my otoliths all my little ear bones with Clive um, thinking that I was going to come back but um yeah obviously we know uh, what happened now but um yeah so Clive had to kind of take the otoliths under his wing and set up a a home lab in his house uh because the National Oceanography Center keeps opening and closing right with cases yeah. going up and down the UK is not a good place to be right now um but yeah, so he's basically drilling all my little otoliths od- for me. I'm super grateful that he's agreed to do that. Um Because I could have just redone my entire project, you know. Um, but yeah, it's pretty cool that I still get to do it. Um The only thing is now these aged ones that I have are still in Newfoundland because I just collected them and dissected them. Yeah. But, I probably won't end up using those in the end, which is completely fine. Like considering (laughs) what's happening right now, like I'm so glad I still get to use, um, what I collected earlier. Um, but yeah, it was kind of crazy. I actually was on like my friend that I visited in Scotland. She, um, she's also into zoology and she was working with birds on, um, this Island in Scotland, the Isle of May, And I was kind of just on this random island, like you had to take a little boat to get there. I was on this random island where nobody lives except for like four researchers. So I was on this island with like a million birds and four researchers, no Wi-Fi, no service. So I didn't know what the heck was going on in the world, right? And then I finally got a phone call from my travel agent, like kind of panicking and being like, you have to get on a flight. As soon as possible, because they're going to start cancelling flights back to Canada. And yeah, I don't know. It kind of happened all really quickly, right? So
0: definitely no stress there at all. Just super casual. No,
1: super (laughs) casual. Just, you know, picked up my my stuff and left my research behind and went home. Um, Yeah, so COVID kind of put a damper in things, but at the same time, it kind of like allowed me to reroute my project a bit like now I'm doing this other chapter which is more of a review because I mean I still haven't got any data back uh just because of the way things are going right which is totally understandable uh but I had to do something between now and the start of COVID like it's almost been a year right so I've been writing this review paper instead not instead but as my first chapter Um, And it's also really interesting, actually, because I get to read a bit more on um, this method and kind of make uh, this linkage between the physiology of the organism and at the individual level, but also um, scaling it out to populations and communities and ecosystems. So my review is kind of going to be looking at describing this method and then applying it to macroecology um, through a different lens with different research ideas and things like that. Um, And that's fun, too. Uh, I really like making figures. I find that I'm a very visual person. So I've been making figures and kind of like writing off of those figures, um, which is also like, obviously a skill to learn. So I'm glad I got to do a bit of of experimental stuff and then also uh, kind of dive into
0: that reading and writing um, world as well. For sure. that I have a hot take on this. I love writing literature reviews. I find them so fun and I feel like I learn a lot from them just by like reading yeah. other papers. It's yeah, kind of like sure. maybe that's just the way I learn but it makes it mm-hmm. so much easier to understand things.
1: Definitely. I feel like reading sometimes I, I like reading but sometimes I forget things so if I can like, read it and, like, synthesize it with other papers and kind of putting it together like you do with the literature review, right, um, it definitely helps me understand more, and I think that if I hadn't done this review, if, if COVID hadn't, I guess, allowed me to do this review, um, then I might have not understood the method as well as I do now, or at least I think I do now, um, so in the end, it was probably, um, kind of a good thing because I have more of that base knowledge that I can then apply to my actual project when uh that data comes back right so it's not a bad thing in the end
0: (laughs) no definitely not so you briefly messaged or mentioned earlier about like pouring like making resin molds and drilling the otoliths so like what are you actually doing with them to kind of collect your data like how do you find all this stuff out about metabolic rates and like their life history and that how are you doing that?
1: Okay, yeah, so um, basically this otolith, um, it has these stable isotope signatures of carbon, right? So um, the otolith is like this hard structure, and you want to drill it because uh, you can look at the stable isotope signatures in the powder of the otolith. So um, it's called aragonite powder. Aragonite is um, a crystalline type of um, calcium carbonate so you drill them down which is actually kind of difficult especially with the smaller otoliths because you have to embed them and then you have to use this tiny tiny micro drill and make sure that you're getting enough weight of this powder um, to be able to analyze it um, so then you put it into this machine called a mass, spe- mass, spect- mass spectrometer um, and you kind of do a whole bunch of things. Honestly, I'm not too sure how the machine works itself, um, but you get these signatures back. Um, and what's cool about um, about these carbon ratios is that they're um, they're distinct. So they're isotopically distinct. Um, so I guess I should talk a bit about what that means. Um, so in the odolith there's these carbon signatures, right? So carbon coming from both the water and from the diet. So these two types of carbon are different when you look at the signature of the otolith. Uh, So you can differentiate between them, which is pretty cool. Um, And you can also differentiate between um, the carbon and its changes because of oxygen consumption. So um, So when the fish breathes, There is oxygen added to the bloodstream, and there's carbon dioxide that's kind of taken out, right? And this carbon coming from these two different sources also goes into the bloodstream. And when respiration happens, the levels of carbon in the blood, they change as well. So when these carbon signatures from the blood go into the otolith through fractionation, um, which is this... um, kind of the medium, the way that it gets absorbed into um, the carbon, or not the carbon, but the um, the uh, otolith, then um, those signatures are also apparent. So these changes in carbon from respirations, you can look at that, and um, you can assume oxygen consumption from these signatures based on a bunch of calibration um calibration equations which look at diet, carbon, and dissolved inorganic carbon from the water. And then you can kind of isolate um, the carbon changes due to oxygen consumption and the ones that are um, from coming from the water and from the diet. So then after that, you can figure out oxygen consumption from that stable isotope signature and from the stable uh, and from the oxygen consumption, you can infer field metabolic rate. So it's kind of all these different steps um, between carbon going into the blood, ox- oxygen going into the blood, then again from the blood to the otolith, and then in the otolith, looking at the stable isotope signatures that we found find in this powder um, that this machine spits out for us, and then figuring out. Um, with some calibration equations, um, which changes are um, because of oxygen consumption and then using that oxygen consumption to determine metabolic rate.
0: Okay, that's super cool.
1: There's a lot of steps involved. And <laughs> I'm sure it's a bit confusing, but I'm still, I'm still learning it myself, you know, so, um, but I like to break things down into steps so I've started um kind of doing more of that but
0: yeah no that that definitely helps make make it a little more understandable.
1: yeah yeah does does that make sense do you have any questions
0: I think it totally makes sense to me it's super cool like I just can't get over how using the otolith which like aren't so tiny and you can just Mm -hmm. learn so much like that just blows my mind
1: yeah and it's cool too because like metabolic rate is this new thing but in the past they've used the otolith to um to age fish right with these bands that are added every year uh to determine where fish are um stable isotopes have been used for a lot of things and even for um kind of calling out like um seafood companies like a lot of the time um, They'll be saying like this: this salmon comes from this stock in this like fancy Norwegian like fjord or something, right? But when yeah. you go back in the otolith, you can actually determine where a fish was based based on the water chemistry signature, um, oh, really? and yeah, then you can kind of like you know call people out on um, like lying about things like that. Um, so it's really cool because. You know, we can kind of um, get the truth behind the experience of the fish um, that way. And it's not only carbon, but it's also oxygen signatures that you can see in the otolith. And that gives you uh, water temperature so you can see what temperature the fish was exposed to, with, with that you can also see like the spawning where it spawned um, migration patterns based on changes in water chemistry um, stock identification is used a lot uh, in the fisheries um, and then with carbon it's been used in food webs for a long time as well so uh, looking at um, the trophic structure where where organisms fall, within the food chain um, and also where they're foraging. So if if they're spending most of their time in the open water or uh, closer to shore. Um, so there's a lot that we can learn um, from these structures. It's really interesting. And uh, yeah, it's crazy that humans have been able to figure this out too, right? Like this has been uh-huh. research that's been going on for quite some time now. And I feel like this is the time where it's all kind of accelerating and we're finding out more and more about how we can use this to our benefit and for the benefit of, um, these animals to try and, um, mitigate any, um, any problems that we might be causing for them, especially in their actual environment. Because like I said, like before, it was always, um, like metabolic rate was always measured on organisms in the lab, but that doesn't tell us much about the way, yeah, yeah, the, the way they're responding to, um, these changes that are really, like accelerating at this in this time right so um it is interesting because we have to take that experience into account and those direct changes um into account to be able to make sustainable decisions yeah
0: so basically these little otoliths are like the diary of a fish in their whole life exactly
1: yes oh, yeah i'm gonna put that. that in my paper that's a that's a good way that's to it. what you could <laughs> actually just
0: title it is diary of a fish yes. like that. Yes. i think that's perfect
1: i love it <laughs> the otolith is a diary
0: <laughs> i love that
1: <laughs> yeah the otolith is a diary and the stable isotope signature is the words yeah,
0: yeah. exactly that's exactly <laughs> it. yeah i love that you can use that and that we're starting to use that to kind of measure the impact that we as humans have on fish because i feel like that's kind of been a negligible thing in the past like we're just kind of like okay yeah we affect fish but no one really knows how or why yeah, so it's really cool that we're diving more into that
1: yeah and also like you know they've done measurements in the past about temperature increase and decrease on fish in the lab but when you put a fish in the lab and put it in this big tank and try to figure out uh, metabolic rate that way. Yes, you're looking at this direct impact of temperature, but there's so many other things that happen um, in a fish surroundings, right? When it's in the wild, like predation and foraging and just interactions with its ecosystem and its habitat and not taking those things into account is kind of like a narrow-minded view of a fish's like experience, I guess. Uh, Yeah. so it's important to like kind of recognize that there's all this other stuff that we might not even know about and that's kind of what this otolith um allows us to I don't know I guess interpret um
0: and kind of get ideas from that yeah definitely so when you're catching these fish like what does a typical day in the field look like for you when you're kind of going out to gather your stuff
1: Right. Um, so I'm pretty lucky because I got to work with the DFO, uh, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Um, so I had a field crew kind of there to help me, which was great. Um, so back in 2019, it was a bit different from uh, my past field season, just because there's quite a bit more regulations set now. Uh, but back in 2019, um, I would hop into the truck with the DFO gang, you know, the government truck. <laughs> and we would kind of make our way over to uh, Terra Nova National Park, which is about three hours from St. John's. Um, and we do a lot of our work on Newman Sound. So it's kind of this inlet um, coming off the ocean. It's gorgeous. Um, I did a lot of my my work in the fall. So uh, definitely got to see some peak colors um, in the trees change, which was beautiful. Um, but yeah, so hopping the truck with DFO and then, uh, in 2019, I got to stay in their field house with them, but in 2020, I kind of had to find my own way there and my own accommodation, which ended up being fun as well, because I kind of um, got some some help from friends, so I brought some friends along, and um, they helped me dissect and kind of helped me get around, which was also fun uh, in a different way, right? Um, so yeah, so we go to Terranova National Park, and we we put the boat in the water, and then Uh, The first order of business is getting all the monitoring done that they have to do for DFO. So uh, there's this really cool monitoring project that's been around since like the 1990s, um, where they go to Nova National Park in Newman Sound every other week. um, And they do these, I think there's 12 sites. So we go to 12 different areas within the Sound and we do some seine netting. So say netting is basically you have this net that you put on the bow of the boat and you deploy it into like kind of a a circular position um, off the shore and then you deploy it and then you pull it on shore. So it's kind of this like bend and you try to scoop up as many things as you can uh, by pulling it into shore. So we usually do that first, um, or like wh- whenever the window is for tides. So we try to get that done, uh, in about two days, we usually can get about six sites done a day. Um, if we're, if we're good and if everything works out with, you know, the wind and the waves and all that stuff, um, so we get
0: the as we know the ocean always cooperates with us for a hundred percent exactly
1: always like glass out there you know never have a spot after it yeah Um, (laughs) but yeah it's really fun actually because uh by doing that you see everything that's in the water right you don't you don't target any specific species so um, you get little like nudibranchs and you get sea stars and cunners and, um a lot of flounders and tiny tiny lumpfish. I love lumpfish. They're so cute and they like sometimes they stick to the size of the bucket and they try to like hide from you. Um, but they're super cute. But when we do the monitoring we just um we just measure them and throw them back into the water right after, right? So um we want to give the fish as minimal stress as possible um because it's really just um keeping track of how the community is doing. And, uh, that's a really cool data set too, because we've had it for so long, right. Since the nineties. So, um, it's really cool to look at those changes and how, um, the fish are being impacted, um, from year to yeah. year. Yeah. So, um, luckily with COVID, they, there was a few weeks, um, where they couldn't go into the field, uh, unfortunately, but the, the monitoring project is still going strong. I think there was only a a couple trips that they missed um and then they got to go back um in slow waves um with a few people but i obviously didn't get um on those first few trips i i was supposed to uh go in may but unfortunately because of all the regulations i ended up going um in like late october and november instead which <laughs> was which was fine obviously um i still ended up getting all the fish that i wanted um yeah, so we do the monitoring and then when there's uh time for my stuff, we'll head over to a few different sites um uh, based on where we know the the cod are usually found. Um we usually avoid the monitoring sites just to keep their data set consistent, so we choose a few other spots in the sound and uh we do the same thing. We deploy the same nets and then we get rid of all the species that we don't want and we look for those age zeros and those age ones. Um, so the way to tell the difference is really with size. Um, DFO does a really good job of like predicting what size, what size each pulse is gonna be. Um, so you kind of can tell when you look at a cod, um, what age it is, what what pulse it is um, based on its length. And also it's, it's body composure usually you can tell um, whether it's more round or a bit pointier and a bit leaner, uh, you can kind of tell if they've overwintered or not. Um, so, so yeah, it's really it's really cool stuff. Uh, it's kind of funny because in two thousand and twenty, you know, like COVID happened and it, it was super windy the one week and it was super wavy and we weren't getting any fish. Like even at the monitoring monitoring sites, we weren't getting any age ones, only the age zeros. And it was looking pretty bad actually for my research because I didn't have anything collected yet, and it was already November. And usually, the right time to get age ones um, is either May or the end of the fall because um, the water temperature is getting a bit colder, so they're coming back into the near shore. Because when the water is warm, they want to be in those deeper waters, right? Where it's a bit cooler. But we can't stay in deep water, so we kind of have to wait for them to come back into the shallows um so you have a pretty small window on uh when to catch these fish and we weren't getting anything um so it was looking pretty dire but we we decided to start night saning, um which is basically wow. the same thing but you're doing it in the dark uh, which I love I'm like a night owl so I have always loved doing uh field work in the dark like I used to work for DFO back in Niagara and we did a lot of night electro fishing which lasted sometimes till four in the morning right um so that was really exciting setting these sayings at night and we ended up getting I think like 50 in one haul and then another 20 after that so I ended up getting about 77 fish uh in the end which was a great great catch uh because it's a nice sample size and I kind of got to experience that other Side of sanding, uh, which is a lot harder actually when you're (laughs) doing it in the dark. Um, Yeah, and also like um Terra Nova National Park is a dark sky reserve. So that means that they're really good about keeping lights off and stuff like that. It's one of the best places in the world to um see the stars. So like having all the lights off on the boat um and like looking at the looking at the sky was gorgeous. I actually saw this comet I don't know if it was a comet or shooting star or what it was but it was red and it left this streak going across the sky it was pretty magical um that's
0: amazing
1: yeah it was insane I definitely want to go back there to see the Perseus meteor shower this summer that's on my to-do list but yeah it was a pretty magical magical ending to my field work um so I have all these samples now don't know if I'll be able to use those age ones but in the end, somebody will use them eventually, right? So I'm really happy I still got that experience. Yeah, and I love field work. Like, it's my favorite part of research, really, is being out there. And, like, as a kid, I was always out in the creek or in the mud looking for worms or spiders (laughs) or crabs on uh, the shoreline, right? So it kind of brings me back to the reason why I wanted to get into this in the first place, right? So
0: knowing that. you that makes perfect sense that you were like the little <laughs> yeah. kid like running around with like mud all over them and everything oh just my like God. look what yeah. i found like
1: yep i would get home from school like covered in grass stains and mud and my mom was like oh no what have you done this time <laughs> yeah.
0: what have we got ourselves into
1: <laughs> i know yeah like So many, I had so many, like, butterfly catching nets, and man, I still remember, like, I was obsessed with ladybugs when I was a kid, and I would, like, catch so many, because I grew up in the Netherlands, and we had, like, real ladybugs, not, like, the Japanese beetles, you know, but, like, beautiful little red ladybugs, and uh, I remember still having, like, a Tupperware container, like, this tall Tupperware container with these strands of grass in them, and, like, I kid you not, there was, like, at least, like, a hundred, ladybugs like crawling over each other and my mom would like release them when i wasn't looking because she felt bad for them <laughs> but <laughs> yeah yeah oh, I, i've always been fascinated with little creatures i just treat them
0: better now obviously i don't keep them in a little tupperware container <laughs> Oh my your mom just like ever so slowly like letting a few out at a time <laughs> killing me. yep Oh my god! Yeah. So you always know that, like, you want—you always knew that you wanted to go into like science of some sort or like animals. Mm-hmm. But did you always know marine science? Or, like, when did you kind of find this?
1: Yeah, actually, it was kind of all because of fate, like in my first year i worked at a reptile center um, which was super cool i got to do like turtle nesting surveys and i actually got to work with like these detection dogs that summer too where we trained them to like recognize where turtles were nesting um and uh, that was like a project for transport canada because you know how there's a lot of construction on the highways and stuff like that in the springtime but um, turtles lay their eggs in the springtime or in, in the springtime, um, early summer time as well. So we did this project um, that was using detection dogs to uh, kind of identify where turtles were laying their eggs without digging them up. So that was really cool. Um, got a lot of field experience, that job. And that kind of allowed me uh, the next year to apply to some other positions, um, one of them being with Dr. McAdams at the University of Guelph um, and I was actually going to go to Kluani National Park in the Yukon to work with squirrels. Um, it was kind of all decided that I did an interview, they had chosen me, but in the end the funding fell through. So I was all excited to go to the Yukon and then the funding fell through, but I had also done an interview with uh, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and they ended up wanting to hire me and it kind of ended up because I didn't go to Kluwani I ended up getting this job with the DFO um, in Burlington and I spent a whole summer you know learning how to trailer boats into into the water uh, launching boats and I did a lot of electrofishing, which is basically um, this method of putting these anodes into the water and the boat is the cathode and you use um, an electric circuit to attract fish um, to these anodes, and then you scoop them out, you put them in the live well, and you measure them and you put them back. So that summer, I um, took a few like identif- fish ID uh, courses for species at risk and for basically all the fish in Lake Ontario. And I learned a lot because after that one course, um, I before that I didn't know anything about fish. I was even surprised I got the job in the first place. But after that course, uh, because I was doing this um, this method of catching fish where you catch literally everything in the water, I got to see so many species of fish, from like small little minnows to like huge carp and long-nosed gar. Like the coolest like animals I'd ever seen right because like when you think about fish like it's not like it's not like terrestrial animals where you see them when you go on walks and stuff a lot of the time you don't know what's down there unless you actually um like actively seek them out or uh read about them so I found that really interesting because I mean I I grew up in the lake like all summer we would be in like Ontario playing like Lake Ontario sometimes is pretty gnarly, but I think that's why I have a pretty strong immune system at this point in my life, Uh, because my mom would just bring us to the beach, and we would go into the water, spend the whole day until the sunset, and uh, yeah, I love the lake, but I never realized how much was in there, you know, and um, we did those electrofishing surveys in areas of concern in Lake Ontario. from like the Toronto Harbor all the way to uh, Bay of Quinney um, to like Belleville. So we spent entire weeks, um, entire weeks gone in hotels and just launching the boat every night and uh, kind of seeing what these communities were in these areas of concern and in these um, areas where the shoreline had been recently developed um, in the open lake and also in wetlands. So I got to see a lot of a lot of cool stuff that I never imagined was in there, you know? So, it was a really oh. cool experience. Yeah, I think that's what really put me on the path towards um marine or like freshwater aquatic science um and yeah, I I really got a great opportunity that way.
0: It is kind of cool that it just kind of like worked out for you that way. Like there's so many things that like went wrong but somehow still went yeah. right like you ended up in the right spot
1: yeah and like as a kid I was super lucky because my parents took us traveling all over the place and my parents are actually divers as well um so when we went traveling we would snorkel a lot like I remember I think I was about like six when I first put a snorkeling mask on and my brother I think was even younger he was like four, like barely, barely walking, and had his little floaters on and his mask and his snorkel, and me and him would just like paddle around like in the Caribbean waters, like of St. Martin or the Virgin Islands, and and I was always like completely blown away by this whole other other world that's down there, right? So I think growing up with that experience, um, it really got me excited about the marine the marine world and corals and all these colorful, vibrant fish really like stuck with me for a long time. And I think I never really like snorkeling around and like Ontario, you don't really see that much. But then when I got that job, I was like, wow, there's so much that we don't know about in these waters. Right. And it's definitely worth protecting it, right? Even if it's not this magical, coral-filled, warm place, like it's still really important to um, to preserve those cool species
0: these cold water water systems don't get enough love they are underrated we love the cold water up here
1: i know and there's all these like you know enthusiastic species but i don't know there's something about like a good long-nosed gar or you know like <laughs> little little brown bullheads little catfish that look so derpy and just hang out on the bottom of the water they're just like really I don't know they all, all have their purpose in the ecosystem and they're all there just kind of to live their lives you know so kind of think about that as well
0: you've also gotten to dive in a lot of like you mentioned like St. Martin's and you lived in Australia yeah. for like So you've gotten to dive in the warm, crystal clear, beautiful water as well. So you have really experienced it
1: all. Yeah, exactly. So like I was saying that um, I snorkeled a lot when I was a kid, but I actually didn't get into diving until 2018. Um, So a few years ago. And that's another thing that kind of happened by fate. Like for a really long time since I was a kid, I always wanted to go to Australia. Like, I don't know. Have you watched the movie Kangaroo Jack?
0: Yes a hundred percent yes
1: that movie like that lady the the girl in there that works with wild animals like she was my role model when I was a kid like I wanted to go to Australia and I wanted to go work with these really cool little animals like you know how she takes care of like she wants to reintroduce Bilbies into the into the habit, like into their ecosystem like I thought that was so cool and I just like kind of watched that movie so much and I just wanted to go to Australia so bad and for a long time I had this dream of going um on exchange and going to Australia that way and I kind of like when the time came to um to sign up I got like a little bit of cold feet but my parents really encouraged me to like go through with it because I don't know my parents always traveled in their own lifetime and they think I think they really knew that I wanted to do it and just needed that little push right so I ended up going I ended up going to the Gold Coast uh which I know you're going to uh go back to happy. soon as well
0: I'm literally yes. drinking coffee from my Griffith mug right now and I like didn't yes. realize until we about, and I was like nice yes. love that
1: I love it yeah no Griffith is an awesome place I was there uh for a semester right so um I got to live in Surfer's Paradise um, for about four months. I was there for an extra two months. Uh, got to travel around New Zealand with a friend. Just really did all of Australia, um, including Tasmania and uh, the Northern Territory. Like, really only had three days of class a week. I had four-day weekends. Um, and all of my classes I adored. Like, we went into mangrove systems on a boat for class. Like, it was like honestly, the best the best year of my life uh, was spent in Australia. But I also got the opportunity to dive when I was there, um, and I think maybe I wouldn't have have done it if I hadn't gone there and been there for so long. You know, like I always wanted to dive, but diving in a pool in like in Ontario <laughs> is just not as appealing, I think, as you know, doing it on in Australia, and, like having the opportunity Definitely. to go out and. Yeah, so I think that really got me excited about it, and like I said, I, I put a snorkeling mask on when I was super young, and I kind of had all these, like, baseline skills, I guess, that you need to have for scuba diving, like clearing your mask and um all of those skills, so I picked it up pretty quickly, Um, and I got to go to, like, Coffs Harbor, to um Solitary Island Marine Reserve, I saw giant cuttlefish, I saw... Um, lemon sharks and whoopie gong sharks. I saw like some really incredible stuff. And my my um diving center at the Gold Coast um diving center was incredible too. Like such a such a comfy environment. Like I would forget a towel or a snorkeling mask at the center, and I would come back to pick it up. And they'd be like, Oh, we're going for a dive in five minutes. Want to come along? And I'd be like, Hell yeah! Like I'm coming. <laughs> and I remember like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I got all these like free dives out of it. I probably left Australia with about like 25 dives in the end. Um, and I just like completely fell in love with it. Uh, so when I got back to Canada, obviously I didn't dive for a little while uh, because you, you'd you really need that community, right? Like even though you can dive in Niagara in Ontario, um, you kind of need friends that do it as well because you can't go yeah. out alone. Um, so I kind of had a break from diving and then, um, my supervisor, Amanda Bates, she's, she's kind of part of this, um, diving community, this, uh, diving project called the Reef Life Survey, um, which basically collects, um, underwater data in countries and shorelines all over the world. And it's a standardized data, um, that they collect underwater. You set out a transect line and you, Count all the fish and measure all the fish, ID them while you're underwater with your little clipboard, and you do the same um, for invertebrate species. Um, so I got to start diving again when I came back or came to Newfoundland and started my project, uh, which obviously is quite different from diving in Australia. Uh, quite a bit colder, obviously. <laughs>
0: Just a little bit.
1: yeah uh so uh yeah I did my dry suit course um so I could keep warm in the water you know which is important um I ended up doing my rescue diver course which was also really really beneficial in the end I think uh doing your rescue really helps you understand everything that's associated with diving and kind of learn those skills that you need really to like diving is quite a dangerous sport right so it definitely is Uh, yeah about doing it um and yeah no coming to newfoundland like there's a great diving community here um me and caitlin um your friend (laughs) um (laughs) we uh work for uh ocean quest um which is the dive center in st john's and they've kind of like absorbed us into their little community and me and her go every Friday and just kind of work around the shop. I know how to fill tanks now which is really cool Um, and we have started me and her this uh, diving club called Student Dive NL and we go every weekend basically every weekend this summer uh, we went for shore dives around the Avalon Peninsula um, and we kind of encourage everyone who wants to come out and dive to come with us and it's been yeah a really positive experience diving around here. Uh, quite cold, but a lot of interesting things to see like um skates and cunners and lion's mains, jellyfish. Um, so I'm really, really glad that I kind of got to take um that experience in Australia and apply it to different places because I think, like I said, like I think every place, uh, every underwater place is worth exploring because. I think all fish and all marine life is interesting.
0: It is. There's so many different things you can discover in every area of the world. And like when you go dive down in Australia, you're gonna see completely different things than if you dive literally anywhere in Canada. Mm-hmm. And then you're gonna see like East Coast Canada versus if you're diving west coast. So it's really cool to yeah. kind of get to experience it all. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah. And I I really like um doing the scientific aspect too, which I'm super lucky to like, I didn't even know that RLS was a thing, you know, before I came here. But I always was snorkeling in in the Caribbean when I was a kid. I always envisioned myself, you know, being doing underwater fieldwork. I thought that was, was, like, the coolest thing ever. And then this summer, I kind of got into it. And, like, I got trained with another uh, lab partner to be able to do it. And now I'm, like, an official Reef Life Survey volunteer, which is super, super cool because we can go anywhere basically. And with the right equipment, we can set up this transect line and you do these standardized monitoring um, surveys. And yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see what's down there. And I think doing that also kind of forced me to like learn a bit more about my surroundings, because sometimes when you go on recreational dives, you're just kind of like, blah, just going along the bottom, you know, looking at everything, but you don't always like, actively search for things or actively try to figure out what things are so I think that really gave me that extra push um to learn a bit more about my surroundings
0: I love that so if people wanted to follow along with you on your scientific journey is there anywhere on social media that they can find you and kind of keep up with everything that you're doing yeah
1: um I actually have a twitter account Um, it's at Valeska Groot. So, um, I'm sure you'll have my name written somewhere. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, I've also recently got, gotten into like the underwater photography area of science. Um, so I'm kind of trying to build a little bit of a portfolio. Um, that also kind of came along with RLS because you go down with cameras and you kind of take, Pictures of whatever you see, right? And I really, really loved doing that. So I've been getting into that a bit more. Um, and yeah, Student Dive L. If you're interested uh, interested in the club that me and Caitlin run, that's on Facebook as well. Um, and yeah, that's that's basically
0: it. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, thank you for coming on today with me. I'm super excited to have you on this episode.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I had lots of fun chatting.
0: For the question that's been scratching my brain lately, it's how do fish hear? How do their ears work? Do fish even have ears? What's going on in there? So I kind of dove into this, did some some of my own research. I knew otoliths had something to do with their ears and I thought, hey, maybe that's how they hear. And it turns out it's one of the ways. So before we talk about how fish hear, we as humans hear by detecting sound vibrations which our brain can translate to sounds and language, which, mind-blowing in and of itself, it's so cool that our brain can do that. With fish, it varies depending on the species, how they hear. Certain species may have specific adaptations based on where they live, if they're predators or prey, nocturnal, migratory, and so on and so on. So depending on the kind of fish, they have different sound perception organs. But to go along with today's episode, we're going to look specifically at otoliths. These otoliths are much denser than water and the fish's body. They're usually made of calcium carbonate. And because they have such a different density, they move different in response to sound waves compared to the rest of the fish's body. This causes the cilia that are on the hair cells within the inner ear of the fish to bend. And these combined actually is what's known as sound for fish. It's what's interpreted as sound for fish, which is So cool, I did not realize that that is how fish would hear. There's a lot deeper we could go into this with how the otoliths hear and the effects that the gas bladder has based on how close it is and how it can retransmit the sound. It's really cool and how fish hear is so interesting. And I really kind of want to look more into it. So if you guys want to hear more about that, let me know. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. I love sharing these stories with you and I love that you love to listen. Make sure if you like the podcast, you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps us out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Waterwomen Pod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening, and until next week, stay salty.